Welcome to Bird Show, where the cars are fast and we are not. <laughs> Do you know what you're going to be doing in 53 days, 10 hours, and 40 seconds, 40 minutes? You know, I just barely know what I'm going to be doing six hours from now. I know what I'm going to be doing four hours from now, but after that, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. And you're asking me about 53 days. Well, yeah. 53 days. That's probably sometime in March. I'm assuming that's the start Let's of the Let's go out in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, we'll be watching a race on a DVR? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Which means we won't be doing it in 10 hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But yes, we are down below the two-month mark for Melbourne. We are, but we don't start with Formula One stuff. There's not a lot going on in Formula One this week. This is a fairly big weekend in other series, though. I I realize this is a Formula One doldrums, but it feels like we just started winter break, and we are about to get to winter testing. I feel like it's kind of flying by, and we are 53 days away from Melbourne. I think that's exciting. It is, because then we'll have more to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you're saying this is a short show this week. It possibly might be. We never know since we don't do advanced planning. I mean, to, to give you an idea of how little that there is, um, Autosport and Motorsport, which even though they're different websites, they're essentially the same website because they carry the same stories and one owns the other. But Autosport and Motorsport are basically carrying four different articles from the same interview that one of the two did. I don't. It's never clear which one did it. But they're carrying four different articles from one single interview with Nigel Mansell. Now, who did the who did the interview with Nikki Lauda, where all of the team bosses and team drivers could ask Nikki Nikki any question? Nikki, huh? I had a I, real hard problem. I, with that. I think only his he, he only appreciates his wife calling him that. <laughs> Would I be my not. guess. <laughs> I, or is that what I he, got tongue-tied. You can let it go now. Is that the name of his dog? Probably. It's definitely the nickname of our dog. You know, that reminds me. I don't have the story in the lineup. I have to go find it. At some point, you're going to have to vamp so I can get the story. Okay. The story about Nikki Lauda getting interviewed by the team drivers? No, we talked about that last week. He bought his airline back. Oh, did he buy his airline Yes, back? I have to go find that story now. Okay, well, now you've spoiled the story. See, now we have started with an F1 story. Nanner, 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 I made you do it. (laughs) No, because it's probably going to be towards the end. Well, anyway, I really liked the questions, things like Lewis Hamilton asking for a raise were questions that was in that interview. Um, Christian Horner giving him a hard time. It was quite fun. Um, Even, like, some bottom-tier drivers were giving him a hard time, which was... Very, very interesting. Well, it was Lance Stroll who was harassing him about comments that Nikki made about um, um, how easy it is to drive in Formula One. Well, there was that. And then somebody asked him whether or not he was good in bed. So, I mean, that's <laughs> that was interesting also. I mean, there was like no holes barred in these questions. What was it? Somebody asked him, like, what would life be like if he had his ear? He did. Um, There was a a rather interesting question. I think it was Martin Brundle that we we can't repeat. (laughs) 
<laughs> Unfortunately, though, as you refer to this article, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the, the only way to get this article is you have to, to register with Autosport. It ah, is one of their... Behind uh, the paywall. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not really behind the paywall, but you have to at least register for the free subscription. Ah. But it was, it was funny. I will give you, it was mid-winter break humor. Yeah. And, you know, for the dry guy that Nikki can be, he's kind of funny. He can be. He has his moments. He also went after um, Christian Horner about buying his ex-wife a Porsche. Oh, Or yes. a Land Rover. Well, because Christian Horner asked that if, uh, since they've won so many years in a row, if Nikki was finally going to buy uh, his wife a Range Rover, because that's what apparently he said she wanted. He, Christian, said that she, Nikki Lauda's wife, wanted and Nikki said, no, I don't know why you bought your ex a Porsche, but she my wife drives my, a Mercedes. Mercedes, so there's no reason for her to buy a Range Rover. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one that Christian Horner was giving him a hard time about. Have I vamped enough yet? Because I'm running out. Yes, you have. Oh, score. <laughs> Go me. So what are we actually starting with since I've not gotten you to talk about Formula One? Well, we're, we're actually starting with what is actually going on this weekend. As we record, now by the time you hear this, it's going to be over. But as we record, we are deep within the, 24 hour, the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona race. Which is an IMSA race. Yeah, it's the, part of the, the IMSA sports car series. Although, just to, to make things confusing, and some of this is because we don't really follow IMSA that closely. But we're going to. Well, we're going to follow it to some extent. Well, to some level, because we're going to try to go to an IMSA race this year. Yeah. Um, but several of the entries, specifically in the Rolex 24 will probably be appearing at Le Mans this year, including uh, the United Autosports car, which Fernando Alonso is, well, is one of the drivers in. Alongside. But he probably won't be driving in Le Mans. Um, no, I thought he had gotten clearance to do Le Mans this year. Did he get clearance for Le Mans? Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, or they're, they're, they're working very closely to, to get him into Le Mans. We know there's no conflict. There's Yeah. So... It's a matter of everybody being comfortable to let him drive in Le Mans. Ah, good to hear. So, Zach Brown, executive grand poobah over at McLaren, is also one of the owners of United Autosports uh, and has given, like we mentioned, a seat to Fernando in the number 23 United Autosports Leger. Okay. Well, going into the weekend, and, and he did do very well. He's driving, like we mentioned, alongside Lando Norris and another guy. Oh, and another guy. He's going to be guy. really popular. He's an up-and-coming star. I didn't know and another guy was going to be quite so big in the circuit, but there's a lot of them. I, well, actually, it's Phil Hansen but it, <laughs> I, and another guy because, really, nobody's talking about Phil Hansen. They're talking about Fernando and Lando Norris. Lando, who is not on named that car. after Star Wars. No, he is not named after Lando Calrissian. <laughs> These are very important points that we need to clear up for our audience. This is the service we provide is clearing up these gray areas within uh, motorsports. Yeah. Well, going into the weekend, yeah. Again, we're already there. The race is going. Um, Zach Brown said, as promising as it looked 
for Fernando. And apparently at one point, um, Fernando got the, was lapping faster than Bruno Senna, who's a defending champion in the IMSA series. Oh, wow. Um, even though he was lapping faster than Bruno, Zach said, yeah, I, I don't think a win is going to be realistic. Um, he said, no, it, it may be possible for either a top five or even a podium. But he did not think that, as he put it, anybody on the team was going to be coming away with watches. Now, he used that phrase specifically because this is the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona. If you win the race, you get Rolex watches. Oh. So he's not expecting them to win. Okay. Well, overnight, unfortunately, they had a bit of an issue. They had actually several issues. Uh, for starters, during Phil Hansen's stint, there was um, a puncture. It brought Phil in. Changed tires, swapped out, put Fernando in the car. Fernando then experienced a brake issue, which led him to uh, run through turn one and cut across the infield. Um, hmm. He managed to get the car back into the pits and immediately into the garage. Now, get, going into the garage in an IMSA race, just like in a WEC race, is not a race ender. Right. Um, the team did work on the car. However, when the car came back out with Lando Norris, they were already 26 laps down. Whoa. That could be a bit of a race ender. However, as we have learned from watching the Amazon Prime series about Le Mans, anything can happen. Yeah, anything can happen. At this point, I think their belief is that um, – they're basically fighting for a top 20 finish in general. Mm -hmm. um, they're not expecting much more out of that. Uh, but the other thing is when it comes to these races, finishing is considered a victory in its own right. Well, that's what happens with these endurance races because the wear and tear on the car alone is incredible. And the amount of time that they put things back together and go into the garage to fix something and try to get it back out, it's pretty incredible that finishing is a milestone. Now, Daytona, we watched a little piece of the IMSA race um, last night, mm -hmm. and uh, apparently Daytona got a little bit of unexpected rain. They kept saying it came out of nowhere, which kind of surprises me since you know they do have weather radar. They do, but if you if you saw the weather radar picture that popped up, it were these itty bitty little storms that were just kind of like scattered everywhere. Mm -hmm. There, it it, it looked like they were they, they were dealing with some pop up storms. Yeah, um, so they had a little pop up storm that caused some problems because everybody had to dive into the pits for some wet tires because it was bad enough that they couldn't stay on slicks, but it wasn't it didn't last long enough. So it was a very you know it was it was calculated thing to try to get the right tires on um and then imsa is also very well known for the fact that they run multiple classes of cars at the same time on the same track so keeping that part straight and trying to follow that on the tv is um it more mind-bending it is now where things stand as we record and again, things are probably going to be changing. And by the time this is published, things are going to be off. So if you're relying on us for live to the minute race action, you wouldn't listen to a podcast. You're in the you wrong place. If you would do that. <laughs> but but where we are right now is 
Um, there have been 18 hours, 43 minutes, and approximately 30 seconds elapsed in a race, with a remaining time of 5 hours and 16 minutes to go. Christian Fittipaldi is leading overall in the number 5 Cadillac, uh, and, and actually all the leaders are in the prototype class. Mm-hmm. Um, he's followed by Mike Conway in the number 31 Cadillac, and... Roman Dumas in the number 54 Oracle LMP2 is in third. Over in a GTLM class, uh, first and second are both Ford GTs. Dirk Muller in the number 66 Ford GT, followed by Ryan Briscoe in the number 67. And then Mike Rockenfeller in the number three Chevy Corvette C7R. And over in the GTD category, Mikko Bartolotti in the number 11 Lamborghini Hurricane GT3, followed by Madison Snow in the number 48 Lamborghini, Lamborghini Hurricane GT3, and then Trent Hinman in the number 86 Acura NSX GT3. Wow, I'm glad I didn't have to read some of those names. <laughs> well, I hope they all come home safely in the last, what is it, uh, eight hours that they have? Eight-ish? Five hours. Five hours. See? Math. Um, well, I, I did give that number. Okay. So they have five <laughs> hours left. Um, so it'll be very interesting and cool to see how they come in. Now, one of the things that we did happen to notice, and, and um, the, the commentators mentioned that this year in particular seemed to be a big year for it. There were a lot of crossover drivers. Yeah. We had, like we've mentioned already, Fernando Alonso, um, we mentioned it, Lance Stroll a couple of weeks ago, is also driving with Jackie Chan's team. Um, but outside of Formula One, and, and there are several former Formula One drivers running as well, but outside of Formula One, Scott Dixon's running, Simon Pagino's running, Elio Castroneves is running, all in in various categories in this race, and even Scott Dixon's doing very well. Yes, and the commentator that was talking about the crossovers um, last night while we were watching made the comment that he thought that if Formula One was to pick up a Scott Dixon that he would do very, very well. Um, But what's the motivation for Scott to go that direction and that Formula One wouldn't look at him because of the snobbery? Uh, There's that, but there's also... Um, interestingly enough, Zach Brown, during the press conferences to the build-up for this week, said a lot of the things that we said last week. He listens to the show. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if maybe Zach has heard of us. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we are the foremost experts on motorsports. On that, our show? On our show. Yes, on our show. We are the experts on motorsports. Exactly. We won't talk about any of the other shows, but at least on our <laughs> show, we are the experts. Um, what he said, and because he was asked about you know the crossovers, what he said was the biggest challenge you have is the lack of testing. You only get eight preseason days of testing, and even that is with one car, so you rotate drivers. To take a day from Fernando's four and Stoffel's four makes no sense. So until that rule changes, it will be difficult for a driver outside of the Formula One arena or Formula Two to break into Formula One because they have such a disadvantage. The system doesn't really allow you to bring someone in. So I think it's great that Toro Rosso took someone like Brendan Hartley because there's a risk with that decision. 
but he knows all those tracks. Specifically, I think Joseph Newgarden is an outstanding talent, and Scott Dixon is an outstanding talent. What happens to drivers, uh, he says, um, as Scott Dixon, who's 37, which, by the way, so is Fernando. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, what happens to drivers is that they eventually lose motivation. That's what catches up with them. So if you look at someone like Michael Schumacher, he was very competitive into his 40s. Had he not taken those years off, those last couple of tenths of a second, he was maybe off. I don't think he or he was off on his return. I don't think he would have been. Fernando has been that same type of dedication. He's driving as well as he's ever driven. And just because he's going to turn 37 later this year, I don't think the stopwatch is going to get any slower. Okay. But we had also said last week that it's really hard for Formula One to look at some of these other non-traditional feeder series because when do you put that driver in the car? Well, and that's the biggest problem is because there's not some unlimited amount of testing, you can't get, you don't want to risk a known for something that is like an out-of-the-box unknown. I mean, if you think about it, the parallel that I would give you is look at what Nissan did in Le Mans a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. They try. I mean, they they seriously they threw away the box. They shredded the box. They tried to put the box back together again with a little bit of duct tape. They moved the engine to the front of the car. <coughs> they were trying to run, you know, uh, an engine in the front versus the traditional engine in the back car. They put a driver in the car that they found through an uh, through an esports game. tournament. Yeah, esports tournaments. I mean, so a video game driver was driving in Le Mans, and they're saying that they think that that will be where they can hone some talent, but... Well, they said that then, but the guy who was responsible for that initiative has been fired. Right. And he's now running video arcades in England. Well, okay, so maybe not (laughs) the biggest thing, but the thing is, to take that kind of risk with the amount of money that it costs, I mean, you've got to really have a bankroll behind you to be able to say, I can... I can just burn this several million dollars to do this test because I'm going to be okay. I mean, that's huge. Well, here, here's the thing. And, and I, I send this message out because clearly Zach is listening. So, Zach, when you finally get the chance to listen to us, because I know you're busy this weekend. You know, there's a lot going on down in Daytona. But here's the thing. As somebody who's in management at a Formula One team mm-hmm. and has a seat on the Formula One strategy group, why not propose, along with all of your other owners, since it is in your best interest that you that Formula One establish a specific testing session for new drive for for uh, drivers that do not have experience in Formula One. I, and I'm trying to deliberately shy away from young driver tests because there's probably about 18 people at least who are sitting in their cars right now beating on their steering wheel. That's a young driver test. Well, the dedicated young driver test that we used to have years ago over at, you know, back when uh, Abu Dhabi was not the last race of the season, um, that's pretty much gone. Now it, it's, it's part of the, the regular in-season test, and you have to dedicate two of those days to a young driver. Why not turn around and separate? And, and what the teams have done is they've dedicated that young driver test to a young driver that's already in their system that they know about. Mm-hmm. Why not make this specifically? And to the point that 
you know, why doesn't the FIA or FOM run this, whether it's off of Formula 2 cars, whether it's off, or, off of an older Formula 1 car? But why not, mind. why not t- specifically target drivers that are not part of a Formula 1 feeder series, that are not in Formula 1 or Formula 2 or F3000 or something like that, that is in IndyCar, that is in Super GT over in Japan, that is in some of these other series, to throw them out there for a day and show what they can do. Hell, even if they took an IndyCar on a Formula 1 track and everybody was in the IndyCar standard car, well, this is what I was thinking. As you were sitting there talking, this is what's going on in my mind. Mm-hmm. Create a, an FOM, like, open audition concept. And, and bear with me. Teams show up to be able to track and monitor and everything, but these people go out in all the same car. Yep. You, you get some standard, whether it's a four-year-old F1 car that's on loan from, you know, they take the dregs of what Manor had. I don't care what it is. But everybody's in the same car. It's a level playing field, and you have to have certain credentials to be able to qualify to hit that audition. We're not even call it a test because they're mm-hmm. not testing the car. They're, it's, it's an audition for the driver. And, for example, I could not go, I'm going to go drive a Formula 1 car because I've never driven a race car. But you have to have a certain number of hours in a seat or something, you know, a, a certain amount of points system or something. Something not too complicated, but... You've driven Indy Lights, you've driven IndyCar, you've driven GT, you have competed at a professional level at a certain standard, and open up the audition as a, like, a new talent pool possibility. It, it's an awesome way to get the opportunity for these unknown drivers <coughs> with non-traditional backgrounds to be able to come up for the system and to come in and give it a go. It would be able to give people a, a, an opportunity to say, hey, yeah, this is completely different than what I know to do, and it's not for me, and it's no longer my goal. I mean, it really opens up, and what does it cost, a weekend? Well, they would do it during a week, but the, the other thought is why not also invite two, maybe three current F1 drivers to also come in and, and run like five laps in those same cars so you get to set your benchmark times. Yep. That way you've got something to measure them against current sitting drivers. And they don't necessarily have to be the world champion. But current sitting drivers. And then you bring in a Joseph Newgarden and uh, a Scott Dixon and a Pagano and some of these other folks and let them show their stuff. I mean, I think it would be awesome if you had your benchmark drivers be like somebody from the top five, somebody from the middle five, and somebody from the bottom five. That way, you could you've got a you've got a range, same car. Yep. But you know, I, I wouldn't want necessarily somebody from the outside to have to try to beat Lewis Hamilton's time. It, well, but if you saw that somebody was sixty percent of Lewis, is that sixty percent? equal to being at the low end of the, the track? I mean, like, where does that fall? I, I don't think you look at it from the perspective of beat Lewis, but it's that idea of you've got a couple of Formula One drivers. In terms of general driving, especially if you have more than one, mm-hmm. in terms of 
general driving styles and the lines that they're going to take and things of that nature. You look at their GPS tra tracings across, and it's that idea of, okay, which drivers are following similar lines, even if they're doing it a little slower? Which, you know, who's, who's hitting the these? Sticks? Yeah, you're looking at more than just the, the, the speed overall. And along the same lines, you allow changes in setup and things like that so that you're also evaluating. Because, um, again, Formula One drivers, to some extent, you're evaluating when, when you're looking to bring somebody into a team, how they interact with the team and the feedback that they give. Give these drivers a chance to also give feedback on the car and impact the performance of the car that they're driving that weekend mm -hmm. and see how they interact with engineers and with a team and all of those various bits. I mean, I think it could be really, really cool. It would be a, a it would be an interesting way to really expand the reach of formula one because even if you only took one person <coughs> out of the open audition everybody that showed up in their country you know you've got the press that comes along with their testing you know so and so and they're auditioning you know this person's got their shot there's something to be said for that yeah and you know throw in a couple of the folks in the, the training series, mm -hmm. but but throw this open to folks who have achieved a certain level of performance in specified series, Correct. whether that's IMSA, whether that's uh, WEC, whether that's WRC, IndyCar, Formula 2, all of these, DTM, all of these higher-end series give, you know, the, the top performers in there a chance to go and strut their stuff. Arguably, that's kind of what Race of Champions is supposed to be. Uh, which, by the way, that's next weekend in Riyadh, so I'm guessing that none of our listeners are actually going to be there. Uh, because remember, more Americans follow get their motorsports information from us than any other nationality. Hey. Sure. Which means it's highly unlikely that any, any of our listeners are going to be in Riyadh. Uh, but next week is Race of Champions. But Race of Champions, I think that's more gimmicky and flash. I mean, yeah, there's some um, drift style, rally cross style events that go through there. But, you know. Okay. We got a little more information this week about how it went down over at Sauber that they kicked Honda to the curb before they actually adopted Honda. They kicked them to the curb before they adopted. Well, remember, they had a contract that they were going to run Honda engines this year. But a few months later, they made the decision, yeah, yeah, no, we don't want that turd in the back of our car. <laughs> well, it came down really fast. Okay. Okay. So you remember your favorite, now former team principal. Monisha Keltenborn. Made the decision to partner with Honda knowing that there was a pretty good chance that McLaren was going to get rid of them next year and that they could potentially be a works team with Honda. Because that's gone so well for the current works team with Honda. Well, considering how she ran team into the ground, it couldn't get much worse. True. <laughs> well, she gets fired, and Frederick Vasseur, 
who walked away from Renault and their dual guy-in-charge architecture because he said that that was a stupid idea. Um, he gets hired on July 17th, or starts on July 17th as team principal for Sauber, taking over from Anisha. So what Frederick said was he started at 9 a.m. on July 17th. At 10 a.m., he had the meeting regarding Honda to make the decision that they were going away. Wow. Way to start off with a bang. Yeah. You know, within one hour, they're gone. Hey. This was a stupid idea. But see, again, possible listener to the show, because we said it was a stupid (coughs) idea. Well, it wasn't just us. Everybody said it was a really stupid idea. Okay, but we are important in our own minds. There you go. So what Frederick had to say, he said, for me, it was important. It is never easy to change the engine supplier first, but Honda was not in very good shape. Plus, and probably most important for me, we were linked to McLaren for the gearbox with absolutely no internal resources to do our own one. I was convinced, as I had some contacts at McLaren, that they would do their best to leave Honda, so I could not be in a position to risk that. Imagine today if I had to request the Honda gearbox from McLaren. It would be an absolute nightmare. Being in the process of working on our 2018 car, we are not able to postpone the decision. All right. And that was, I think, the, the, the thing that we wondered about back then, but we weren't sure is how that would work if they were bound in the contract to get their gearbox from McLaren, but McLaren said, yeah, we're done with Honda. We're going away. Yeah. It's interesting. So. Yes. We've talked briefly about what we did for our, va- our holiday vacation. Yes. Very briefly. What we haven't talked about is what Charlie Whiting did for his holiday vacation. Did we know what Charlie Whiting did for his vacation? We do now. Okay. I mean, arguably, he's potentially still on vacation. But what we have known, that what Charlie likes to do, or he tends to do, during his holiday vacation from Formula One, is he tends to go to other circuits and inspect them for grade one certification. As one does. Especially if you're race director for Formula One. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who does not want to spend their vacations from their very active inspecting type jobs doing more inspections at other tracks? Well, Charlie went to Holland. Specifically, he went to the Assen TT circuit. Um, We do know that there has been a push for a return to uh, Holland for Formula One and a return for the Dutch Grand Prix. Now, Formula One group wants a city race. Mm -hmm. It seems that all of the potential cities in Holland... Said no. Don't want Formula One to do a city race. They want them to go to to Zandvoort, which has hosted and, and has a bit of a checkered history in Formula One, but has hosted Formula One races. Um, but Assen has stepped up and said, hey, we're kind of interested in this too. Okay. So as part of that, Charlie went to go do an, uh, an inspection. Um so there's already been a preliminary assessment. They've already also done some simulations. I guess they, they run some computer simulations to see 
and, and I don't completely understand how it works. I'm assuming it's more than just uh, running the, the Formula One 2016 game and, and see, plugging in the Aston track and seeing what would happen. Um, but they think that just some minor layouts or, or minor layout changes are all that's needed for the circuit to achieve a grade one certification and possibly host a Formula One race. Uh, some things like some extra curbs, some guardrails, and tech pro barriers at certain points around the track. But the major, there wouldn't need to be any major changes to the layout itself, which is important to the track chiefs. Okay. Chiefs. You have to excuse my, uh, I'm a little congested, so I, I can't speak as well as normal. And you gave me a hard time for getting tongue-tied one time? It doesn't happen often. That's why I have to point it out that, you know, instead of chiefs, I said cheeps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So th the big concern that the folks at Assen have is they still want to host MotoGP events. They are primarily a MotoGP track. So any changes that would get prescribed, they don't want to impact the MotoGP side. Oh, well, I can understand that. So we'll, we'll see where this goes. I, I, I won't say that this means that we're getting a Dutch Grand Prix anytime soon. But, but maybe we're a little bit closer. Yeah. Speaking of MotoGP. Yes. And no, I'm not going to go into anything about MotoGP. Other than the fact that they went to Barcelona mm -hmm. and told Bar and, and Barcelona also hosts MotoGP events, but they said, hey, you guys need to make some changes here, otherwise we're leaving. So Barcelona has done some work in the off season to the track, okay. specifically to accommodate MotoGP. The biggest thing is they repave the track. Oh, nice. Well, yes and no. Oh. Because remember that what happens when you repave the track is you completely change out the track surface. Well, Formula One uses that track for their tests, and they know what that track surface is like, and Pirelli knows what that traffic that track surface is like and knows how abrasive that track surface is. So now you go and you repave it, and you've got all the new oils and, and all of the other stuff are now bubbling up with a fairly consistent pace, and that impacts how the track handles. Well, I mean, we saw, we've seen this when we've got new tracks. I mean, remember how... Russia is so easy on tires because it's brands making new asphalt. Yeah. Um, you know, we get a repaved track and it's easy on the tires. Well, and to, harder to on the, the grip. Well, to the point that like Malaysia, which was known as a track that was very abrasive, um, the, the right after they repaved it, we got softer tires because the track surface was, was so much smoother. And we saw that in uh, Brazil and, and a couple other places. Now... Mario's, Mario Izola, who is now in charge of Pirelli Autosport, uh, was speaking to Autosport about the changes and the potential impacts it could have. Um, he said that their target was to make the pavement similar in terms of roughness to the old one. Okay. Now, even he says, you really can't make the new service exactly the same. It's, it's just not possible to recreate the effects of the erosion and the wear and all the other races. Um, but what Pirelli normally does is they measure the roughness of the, the tarmac on Wednesday before each event. The idea is that next week they send a couple of engineers to measure it, to compare it, the old circuit with the new circuit, what they've, the, the new pavement. 
He says he knows the circuit is planning to run many cars between when they finish the work and the start of the preseason test to try and stabilize it, as you have a lot of track evolution at the beginning because you have oil um, and other things that are bubbling up that they, they're trying to wear away and get out of the circuit. He says there are some treatments you can do like high-pressure water, and there are machines that can clean a little bit of the first layer that is greasy. It's probably true that the first day of testing or maybe a couple of days, there will be an evolution, and then they should see consistent conditions. This is going to be frustrating to the teams because if the track is consistently getting faster as they're doing their testing, <laughs> you don't have a good baseline and understanding of is it because the track is slowly bedding in or, or is it because the changes some... they're doing to the car yeah. are making the cars faster? Yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah. So we'll see how this shakes out. Okay. Remember how we said that the T-wing was going away? They changed the rules. There's no T-wings. I feel like we're in that on-again, off-again high school relationship thing again. Well, it turns out that the way the rules are set up. We get them back. Kind of. Okay. Now, if you remember, picture the Williams car. Mm -hmm. <coughs> there was the high T-wing. Right. The one, the one that was over the shark fin. And Williams in particular, a couple of times, ran additional fins lower down. Right. The rules have banned... The high T-wing. Not the low T-wing. Right. Got it. Okay. So we may see, and, and, and actually it, it's extremely likely that we're going to see the return of the fins lower down on the bodywork, similar to the Williams' lower portion of the T-wing. Okay. So a partial on-again, off-again relationship with the T-wing. Yeah. Speaking of on-again, off-again relationships, Force India and Sauber. Yes. Seem to be happier with Formula One Group. Oh, that's good to hear. Now, you'll remember, and we promised we were going to watch this, and we expected something to happen in 2016, and nothing did. But you'll remember, all the way back in 2015, Monisha Keltenborn, your favorite, <laughs> and Bob Fernley, they got together. and Which they was went, very scary and yeah, well, not something you want to <clears> imagine. <throat> But they went to the European Union and they lodged a complaint at the end of the 2015 season targeting Formula One management and specifically Bernie Eccleston alleging anti-competitive practices, um, unfair governance structure regarding the split of revenues, mm -hmm. to which the EU said, okay, we'll take a look. And then and we waited. Radio silent. And then we waited. And we waited. Well... In response to absolutely nothing happening from the EU <laughs> and a change in ownerships, um, Force India and Sauber have withdrawn their complaint to the EU, citing that there is um, a new culture of transparency to the sport and, and that Chase Carey and his new management team illustrates a willingness to debate fundamental issues such as the distribution of prize fund monies, cost control, and engine regulations. Okay. According to their statement, they are encouraged and reassured by the even-handed and fair negotiating approach taken by the new management of Formula One and to all the teams and their issues. All righty. 
So nothing has actually changed other than people are talking, and that seems to be good enough. But remember, we don't have a commercial agreement for 2021 yet. <laughs> True. <laughs> so we shall see what happens, but at least they pulled the complaint out of the EU that wasn't going anywhere and nothing was happening with it. Yeah. Um, as we get closer to winter testing, we're knowing we're getting more information on car reveal dates. Williams is the latest to announce their date. Um, they're going to be the first car we're going to see. Okay. It'll be a London launch event on February 15th. Okay. So just a quick review. We've got Williams on February 15th. February 22nd will be Mercedes and Ferrari. February 23rd is McLaren and Toro Rosso on February 25th. Uh, Toro Rosso's will be in Italy. Okay. And do you have your calendar marked for these events so that we can make sure that we um, know? I do not yet. Uh, I will start actually building out. Hopefully we've got enough information about the season and I can start building out the calendar and provide it for download like we did last year. Yes. There's talk. Right now it's only talk. But there is talk that um, Formula One race times, and this is part of the reason why I haven't worked on the calendar yet, Formula One race times for 2018 may be shifted. Okay. Um, not Nothing major, but we're talking about an hour or so, and actually a little more than an hour. Um, they're talking of going from 2 o'clock race starts to 3.10 race starts. Okay. The idea is the, the one-hour shift is regarded to uh, ratings. They think that the European races, it would be better to have them start an hour later. I don't completely understand the logic for that. However, the 10-minute shift is specifically for the American market. So now all the Europeans are pissed off. Okay, why 10 minutes after the hour for the <clears throat> American market? Because we have commercials. Oh. So the idea, and, and I don't know exactly how they're going to do this and what their, their, their thought process is, but the idea is the 10 minutes allow the, or accommodate American commercials somehow okay i don't know if this means that they plan on running a 10 minute commercial role that is going to make us all hate our life but in exchange for 10 minutes solid of commercials we're not going to have commercial breaks okay that would be awesome because then i can just tune in at 310 <laughs> true but and not have to hate my life for the 10 straight minutes of commercials i don't know all I ask is, since we're not having NBC Sports do this, is if you decide to do the cutaway and the side-by-side -side of, the, of the race with a commercial, could you not shrink down the screen to half the size? Like, do a side-by-side -side and use all of the screen so I can still see the race. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever happen. Wang. Now... A lot of this is up in the air because we still don't have details on what the American broadcast will look like. Sure. We know that it's going to be on ESPN 2, I believe. Not on the Ocho. 
<laughs> I was gonna say I made the joke that it was on the Ocho so many times I don't remember which one it is on. Yeah, I, I believe it's ESPN two with Montreal and possibly Austin. I don't think Monaco is going to be live on ABC. Right, because ABC will carry um, Indianapolis 500 on Monaco weekend. Yeah. So keep that in mind. But they're not conflicting. Right. So we'll see what happens. Um, Also expected to move uh, in terms of start time is the French Grand Prix. Uh, That's actually expected to start at 4.10 p.m. However, the reason for that has nothing to do with the U.S. Okay. Um, it's actually to avoid a direct clash with the England versus Panama World Cup game that's going to be starting at 2 p.m. French time. Okay. So, in other not-quite-dead-yet news... Okay. So we had the T-Wing, not-quite-dead-yet. If you remember back, we had Manor... As a Formula One team. Okay. They are dead. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, but they've had an auction. They don't have any stuff anymore. Miracle Max has provi- pronounced <clears throat> them fully dead. All the way dead. You can only go through their pockets for lint and pocket change. Right? Kinda. Uh. Well, first to be clear, what actually went away was the Manor F1 team run by Just Racing Services. Okay. Manor Racing Team, which is technically the overall umbrella, still exists and is still running and is still functioning as a a World Endurance Championship team running LMP1 cars. Okay. It's still being run by Graham Loudon, and it's still being run by John Booth, who were both the two... uh, leaders of the formula one team okay following you so manor racing team still exists okay so somebody spoke and actually it was auto week not to be confused with autosport or motorsport but auto week caught up with graham loudon who is the ceo of the team and asked about a possible manor f1 comeback Okay. Now, despite the headline, this is what Graham had to say. Okay. He said, if nothing changes, if there is no cost cap and costs stay the same, then we cannot go back because it is impossible to race against the big teams. But we have heard from the FIA and Liberty that work is being done to reduce the cost for private teams. In that case, we are interested in returning. Both myself and John Booth have unfinished business in Formula One. Oh, very interesting. Now, I do not take that to be the headline that everybody ran with of Manor considering return to Formula One. What I did say is that it's not quite dead yet. <laughs> okay, so he may need a, a miracle pill with a chocolate coating. It helps it go down. Or, if you take the, the Dumb and Dumber reference... So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know I've never seen that movie? You're not missing a whole lot. I mean, that's kind of why I've never seen the movie. You've you've got the so so you're saying there's a chance. That's that's about it. Okay. Um. What is also not quite dead yet, and we're holding out hope, but I think we're going to lose on it anyway. Is our favorite. 
F1 coverage. Be, uh, Channel 4? Yes. Because it is much better than ESPN. Now, the reminder, which unfortunately um, I had forgotten, and I'm probably going to get lots of reminders this year, is this is the last year for that coverage. Correct. Um, it is the last year for our Brit friends and for our Americans who are using um, extra legal purposes <laughs> or, or methods to obtain the British coverage. It is the last year we will be able to get such coverage because starting in 2019, the only way to get the British coverage is through Sky, which is um, subscription only. And it means at that point, if you're going to get the Sky coverage, you're going to probably have to wait about two or three days for somebody to go and uh, rip it and drop it on BitTorrent. It's good coverage, but you got to wait two or three days to get it. Yeah. Well, along with the Channel 4 coverage, um, perennial fixture of uh, Formula One coverage, Lee McKenzie is also saying that this year is probably her last year at Formula One. Aww. Um, what she points out, for starters, is that um, she really wasn't a Formula One journalist. She didn't start to become a Formula One journalist. <laughs> um, it just so happened that BBC came to her. She, she's a sports reporter in general. Um, but the BBC came to her, and that's where she got her start in Formula One, was the BBC asked her to become the pit lane reporter. Um, so she has done that. But last year in particular, and she actually said about five years ago, she started looking at what life is going to look like for her outside of Formula One. Um, she, in the last year in particular, what she has covered, um, she did the Six Nations Rugby, and a, the boat race that goes along with that. Um, Channel 4 took her off Silverstone to cover power athletics. Um, and then amongst all of that, plus Formula One, she did the European Women's Football Championships and Wimbledon. Oh, my word. Yeah. Wow. So to have Formula One taken off her plate, probably not a big deal for her. And didn't she have a baby like two years ago? Uh, no, you're thinking Jenny Gow. Jenny Gow had the baby. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I yeah. But <laughs> seriously, sorry, I didn't mean to apply a baby to Lee McKenzie's life that didn't exist. Yeah, no, no, she she does not have a baby. You're thinking Jenny Gow. Um, she said, like, like I mentioned, about five years ago, she gave thought about what she was going to do without Formula One. She said that she didn't start in Formula One. She's not a Formula One journalist. But she supposes she is a Formula One journalist because that's what takes up most of her time and it's what people associate her with. But for her, it's important to have a variety of work. She says she loves F1, but she also loves the different things she works on and presents. When F1 comes off terrestrial television at the end of this year, and she's talking in Britain in particular, she wants to have other things to do. Um, she doesn't just want to go somewhere to only do Formula One that doesn't interest her. Now, one of the things you'll notice is that, you know, in the last year as Formula One Group and Liberty have changed overall coverage in the world feed, we've seen a lot of Will Buxton. Mm -hmm. We've seen Martin Brundle. We've seen Kai, whatever his name, from Spain and a couple of other, or from Germany, 
and a couple of other broadcasts. We haven't seen Lee McKenzie. True. She has not taken part in that. Okay. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, she did talk about some of the things that Channel 4 has done. Um, she says that Channel 4 open, has, has really worked to open up their Formula One coverage to non-F1 fans. Um, she says it, it's been very different, and I think we've seen this, to, to what BBC has done. And, and she likes the fact that they brought in folks like Mark Webber and Susie Wolf to give it a very different dynamic. Um, she also says that she loves working with, with Eddie Jordan, um, considers him now a very close friend, but as she, she has explained, um, he has better inside knowledge of F. There's few people who have better inside knowledge of Formula One than Eddie. And we've mentioned this also. Uh, we, we've talked about this in some of the other things that we've heard about Eddie is that mm -hmm. people talk to him when they will talk to nobody else and they share things. And, and Bernie was notorious for this, sharing stuff with Eddie Jordan that he wouldn't share with any other journalist. Um, what Lee had to say about Eddie is that He's exactly what you see. He's not turning it on for the camera. It's easy to think of him as a joker, but you have to remember what he achieved with Jordan Grand Prix, and after that, he broke the story of Lewis leaving McLaren. It's not like he's trying to be different. He just knows things, and he knows people. The number of times he has not just had an inside knowledge of something, he'll actually be part of a deal, moving a driver from one team to another. He knows everything that's going on. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which makes it funny that he got it so wrong that Mercedes was leaving. Yeah. That's interesting, unless it's smoke and mirrors, because I know he knows things that he can't say, too. You know? Well, yeah, because of negotiations and contracts and things of that nature. All right. If I remember from our pre-show prep... <laughs> Um, you mean our pre-show prep that we did during the intro? Yes. That was our last story. We have, I, I have recovered the story, the last Nikki Lauda story. Oh, okay. So Nikki Lauda had, back in, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s, he launched an airline and was part owner of an airline that was called Nikki mm -hmm. that flew in Europe. And it was why he, he left Formula One to go run this airline. Yeah. Well, through various business dealings and machinations and whatever, he withdrew from the airline. Uh, it was rebranded and renamed. What we know today as Air Berlin was Nikki's airline. Okay. Um, the airline has struggled. It's, it's um, kind of collapsed, actually, recently. Well, it, but it was partially owned by um, British Airways. Okay. Well, he has entered into a deal alongside Ryanair to repurchase the airline. Interesting. Now, we don't know whether or not he's going to – actually, it sounds like he's probably not going to bring back the Nikki name. Uh, but it does sound like that between Ryanair and Nikki Lauda, they're going to bring the airline back. Well, that's cool. I just can't imagine, okay, being at that point in your life that Nikki is. I mean, he's not a spring chicken to take that part on. Like, at some point, don't you get to sit back and put your feet up? Yeah. So he he sold his remaining stake in the airline 
in 2011. Okay. Actually, I think this is the second airline he started. Because according to the article from Reuters, they're saying he founded the airline in 2003. And I thought it was a lot earlier than that he launched that airline. I don't know. But yeah, he is back in the airline business. All righty. That's our last story. Okay. So on that note, what are we on time? Oh, we, we are right about where you want to be to talk about Jensen's book. Okay. So I want to do a quick review. Life to the Limit by Jensen Button. I have finished the book now that we mentioned we were – that Michael had read and I was finishing last week. Now, I, I will just throw it right out there. Spoiler alert. At the end of the book, Jensen retires. Yes. <laughs> okay. So things that everybody knows about Jensen. He's a Brit. He's a world champion. He's retired. Yes. You will not be surprised by any of those facts that come up in the book. <laughs> in fact, I will tell you that there is very few things that were truly surprising to me. Um, oh, no. I There were to me. Uh, you know, we didn't hear a lot in the past about Jensen and, and growing up and – um, what his family was like and how close-knit, with the exception of the divorce, how close-knit his family was. Okay, so yes, there was some of those things. Um, there were things that were, I guess I should say, there were things that were surprising, but I don't think they were at all earth-shattering, except for one small thing. Um, things that we I learned was his dad had owned a dealership. Um, his dad sold the dealership when Jensen started racing because um, his dad bought him his cart and then opened up a cart shop and tuned engines for other carters out there, including Lewis Hamilton. Well, I, I think that the biggest thing was there was a reminder of how tight and how close and how small the Formula One community is because within pages of that book, within the first couple of pages of that book, Jensen mentions how uh, his dad, John, got started. And it wasn't that he owned a car dealership at first. He started washing cars for car dealerships and was working in a car dealership when the owner of uh, the dealership from what across the street or down the road from very one of the neighboring dealerships tried to hire him and he turned him down. Well, that owner was Bernie Eccleston. Yes, and they've known so so Bernie and John Button have known each other for years, and it was one of the things that John used to te tease Bernie about in the paddock was the fact that Bernie tried to hire him and John turned him down. Now keep in mind, it's not like. Nobody in the Button family had ever done racing before. John was a racer. Yes. Um, and in fact, when he finally did own his own car dealership, dropped his VW Bug. Colorado. Colorado. Out in front of the dealership as part of the marketing strategy mm -hmm. for it. So, I mean, he came by racing. Jensen came by racing very naturally. But I think even John was surprised at how naturally he figured out how to take lines and how to methodically go through the race. What I found fascinating was Jensen talked about his hero and we, 
we never heard this through the years, but everybody knows that Lewis's hero is Aaron Senna. Yes. I mean, it's all over his helmet. It's all over the number of his car. It's all over those things. Did you know before reading this book that Jensen's hero is Alan Prost? No, I hadn't. I mean, that's the kind of thing that was like, oh, really? But it's the professor mentality, the perfect lap every time, consistency that Jensen strived for. And the truth was he was very quick to say, I'm not the fastest in a single lap. I am methodical and I'm looking for the best over an entire race distance. Mm -hmm. But throughout the book, you really get a sense of how many greats Jensen has driven against and with. Um, you, you mentioned that it's such a tight-knit community. That was very evident in the book um, and how small it is. Yeah. Uh, um, whether it was starting off and in, in karting and, and, and who he was driving with or the the – commentators yes <laughs> johnny herbert who uh the year he was in juniors and made it into the championship series johnny herbert had started in formula one and apparently had a side gig being the tv commentator for the cart series that jensen was driving in. right <laughs> so i mean those things were like it was a book of brushes with people that you know and, and his take on some of those things that was very interesting. Now, how he got into Formula One, I was fascinated with. I, I flipped through the pages quickly and it read like a sweetheart story and all of those bits and pieces were awesome. Then he started to go year by year, sometimes race by race, of what he did and how he got there and all these different pieces and some there were like a tidbit here and there but i have to say that from my perspective that was some of the the duller parts of the book see and i i was okay with that part i, I didn't have a problem with it yeah you like nonfiction a whole lot more than i do though well there you go um i mean some of it was interesting in the fact of who he was racing for and some of the team dynamics but it was it was less team dynamics and less personalities and more like i came in sixth and that was bad or i came in 14th and i was really excited about it because we hadn't finished a race in a while i mean it was it was that type of thing um he spoke of his championship year and that was really interesting to read um but then at the towards the end of the book the one thing that i learned that i didn't realize was around jensen's retirement and really what the precipitating act event, what that driver was what that real driver was his dad had been trackside since day one and when his father passed i think that he took with him all of the joy of formula one yeah um it, it definitely felt like the motivation was gone at that point from from the way jensen described it in the book mm-hmm. um <clears throat> Now, what I also did not know was how not just respected but loved John Button was in the paddock. Yeah, you know, we had heard, and and again, not being in the paddock, you don't necessarily see it, but we had heard through the years the stories of how much of a fixture John was in the paddock, but really getting that understanding and idea of really what that meant Mm – um, 
And how hard it must have been for Jensen to race that first race without his dad there. Yeah. Um, and he did last a season without his dad, and that's about the time he had started. He did his video message and said he was retiring, but as an ambassador, but I think he was done. Um, and that the end of the book is a really a big tribute to the old boy, which is what he calls his dad. Um, and that part I understood. And some of the really cool pictures of him growing up at the end was super fun to look at. <laughs> um, but overall, I would give it a solid mediocre. I'll, I'll go a little higher than that. Um, I, I, I think it's definitely worth the read. I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't a great book, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, by comparison, and I don't expect you will read it, was Mark Webber's book. You told Ozzie me not Grant. to bother. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it really felt like somebody took a, a tape recorder and said, okay, Mark, go talk. Mm. And then they went and just transcribed what he said directly into a book, and that was the end of it. Um, yeah, there were some interesting comments and some interesting things that are made around the middle of the book and talking about his life with uh, Red Bull and the fr some of the frustrations that he had. But even that, he did not... Go this, this was not a burn-it-all-down feature. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is because he still does some stuff with Red Bull and can't completely torch them. Well, that, and he's still definitely on the peripheral of the support. I mean, even Button didn't torch anybody. Not that he's ever been known for torching people. He's a team player at his core. But... Um, although he... Although um, Mark was very, very uh, vicious when it came to Frank Williams and Patrick Head. Mm. Um, not flattering at all. Did not like either of them. And... Yeah, that he is probably not on Sir Frank's Christmas card list now. Ooh, yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Um. So there, you've got two little book reviews. Now I'm gonna just say that between um a, just an absolute flood of movies and documentaries on various motorsport racing that has shown up on Amazon Prime here in the last month or so there's also been a flood of books that have started to come either come out or resurface um that are available if you wanted to know something about the history of motorsport you could pretty much find it right now at your fingertips it seems to be all available so either our <coughs> algorithm is working in our favor these days but I know that every time I turn on Amazon Prime right now it's suggesting some new Formula One or motorsport well, Seriously. it's because we watched a lot all of a sudden, and we didn't have much of a history on the Apple TV app. Yeah, but there is a lot out there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, there's your book review. A little shorter show this week. I um, want to remind everybody that uh, you could always leave us reviews, comments, and find us on various points of the web um, at our website on Facebook. Say hi. Uh, Say that you've read or not read or that you're choosing to take the line of uh, not reading Mark's book. I'm interested to know. <laughs> um, and uh, again, if you have like 
sponsor suggestions for McLaren. We're still looking for our options here. Hell, McLaren's still looking for options. We wanted to help Zach Brown since he's a listener now. And even even if McLaren, you're not going to suggest sponsors for, there's always Sauber. Yes. Um, so anyway, uh, we, on that note, I think we should probably call it a show. Okay. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.